Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why that we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors. And uh, before we dive into that rich text that Mitch just read for us, I'd love to give a bit of a brief update on the Columbia Bibles project. We're raising above and beyond dollars in partnership with our global outreach partner here at the Shawnee campus, Global 21. Uh, we've worked with Global 21 for a couple few years now. Uh, that's led by a missionary named John Powell, who uh, our own Kathy Gordon has a long uh, couple of decade history with. And uh, John and Global 21, uh, with tons of indigenous leaders in the nation of Colombia, has done phenomenal work. Uh, a lot of it anchored along the border of Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, and with the crisis uh, ongoing in Venezuela, they get the opportunity to serve a lot of Venezuelan refugees who are coming across the border uh, to have some of their basic need met, have some of their basic needs be met, and to have their spiritual 
needs be met as well. One of the uh, really exciting reports of active ministry that is ongoing there is how uh, Global 21 and John Powell and the other leaders get a chance to train up uh, pastors to go back across the border and do some uh, really remarkable church planting and church leadership work. And this equipping happens in general ways and then happens in the very specific way of needing uh, Bibles, more Bibles, more Bibles, more Bibles uh, to be able to take with them back across the border. And so we uh, have done this now for three years, have uh, done a Columbia uh, Bibles project, uh, and I'm really excited uh, to give a report and to encourage us to keep going. Uh, and so the church has $5,000, and we were seeking uh, to ask you for above and beyond giving the congregation for another 5000 for a total of ten, which would actually equal 10,000 Bibles, because it's $1 uh, for one Bible printed in country in Columbia. And during first service, I gave the updated total of where we were at on that second $5,000, and uh, in the lobby, somebody caught me and, and matched the rest of the total. Uh, so we can celebrate that, yeah, let's clap. Um, and then can I ask us to keep going? <laughs> uh, so we have the 10,000, the 5,000 the church had, and then uh, your above and beyond generosity. Uh, but again, one, $1 is one Bible, and so we can keep doing more and more. And excitingly, myself, Kathy Gordon and Nathan Kurtz, uh, who really leads out in this partnership with us. Nathan is on Global 21's board, uh, has been in country with a couple of different teams uh, from here at Christ Community Shawnee over the last few years. Uh, the three of us are going down uh, to Columbia in late April. We have a short trip planned, uh, and we're going to get a chance. We're collecting through April 9th, as you can see on the screen. We're going to get a chance to give out these Bibles uh, and, and to hand them. We're, I'm going to come back with a video uh, that will show us uh, getting a chance to meet and, and build a relationship with and hand out the Bibles to the people that will be carrying them back across the border. And so uh, that's super exciting to me. I'm, I'm thrilled about what's going on and, and how the congregation, our congregation is responding. And so would love to invite more and more of that. In fact, let's pray uh, for that right now and pray for God's help also in understanding this passage of scripture we're about to study. Father in heaven, we do come before you celebrating uh, the generosity uh, of our congregation so far uh, to match the money that the church uh, has uh, to be so incredibly generous uh, with dollars that will go directly to Bibles, that will go directly uh, to people who maybe, possibly, probably have never had their own copy of your word. What an incredible opportunity we have. What an incredible gift your word is. And so thank you for the generosity that is already here. We've got five more weeks, four and a half, five more weeks uh, as we are still collecting through Easter. What, what else can you do in and through us, God, as you move each and every single one of our hearts to above and beyond financial generosity for this project? We pray for John. We pray for the other leaders that he works with. We pray for Global 21. We pray for the church on the border. We pray for some of the revival that has been happening, some of the preaching that is going on, the gospel being spread, and your word, your word, uh, the Bible being created, uh, being printed, uh, and given out uh, in such extraordinary ways. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity to get to partner in this specific manner. Uh, I also am grateful for your word and the specificity in John 16, specifically in John 16, as we study that passage this morning. May I diminish as you increase. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Ashley and I have been parents, my wife Ashley and I, we've been parents for coming up on eight years. Bevan's uh, birthday is in April, just a month away, actually just a couple of days after Easter. Uh, Bevan will turn eight. And, and one of the joys that we've discovered, a joy that's only been like a little bit annoying, uh, has been how kids relate to time. Right? You know what I mean, right? So the, the classic cliche example of this is the road trip question. 
What do I mean by that? What's the road trip question? Are we there yet, right? And it's only a cliche until it happens to you, right? So it's a nine-hour drive for me and my family recently, north of Chicago, going to go see uh, my extended family. And folks, we're not even out of the metro yet. And my sweet son, Owen, he says, are we there yet? It's like, oh, buddy, no. (laughs) I'm really sorry. But this is how time works, right? Or I thought of this example with Bevan. Yeah, our oldest, it's easy to say when somebody asks you to do something that, oh, sure, yeah, I'm, I'm willing, I'll do that in a minute. Now, I say that, we say that, that's common. Bevan's pretty literal. What does he hear? Like, like he says, like, come back, can, Dad, can you play with me? I say, sure, I'll do that in a minute. 60 literal seconds later, he's back, right? Dad, it's been a minute. Can you, right? It's like this is time. And, and actually, Ashley and I have tried to cut out that phrase from our vocabulary as a small, small way to help him navigate and understand the challenge that is time. And time is a challenge, isn't it? Not just for kids. Time is a challenge. I'll be the first to raise my hand and say that I struggle with time in a whole variety of ways. And as I thought about it this week, I realized that a lot of my challenges with time are born out of the fact that I am building my life on the foundation of an apprenticeship with Jesus. You know, I'm a Christian, and maybe you are too, and if you are, what that means is that how Jesus relates to time, how he engages with it, thinks about it, how he relates to time matters deeply for us because our lives, including our lives related to time, ought to relate to, be built upon, ought to be shaped by his life. And listen, for me, maybe it's just me, but I don't know, a lot of times it seems like this. Jesus lives in a different time zone. Like I'm over here doing my thing, and like Jesus like lives in this different time zone. Now, I do want to be clear that what I mean by this statement is that Jesus relates to, and he engages with time in a wholly different manner than I do. Please, please, okay, like, of course, I don't literally mean that Jesus lives in a different time zone. From a philosophical standpoint, we know this. Jesus stands outside of time. He's in heaven reigning at the right hand of God the Father, and I'm pretty sure that in heaven they don't set their clocks to Eastern Standard Time, right? Like, that's, I I don't literally mean Jesus lives in a different time zone. I just mean with my my experience with time in this year, in this month, in this week, In this day, in this hour, in this minute, in this very literal second, you and I, we cannot escape time. We can't escape time. We are bound by it. And I don't know about you, but in my life, that has not always been easy. In fact, it's quite often been a challenge and a struggle how bound I am by this very second right here, right now. It's hard. You know, time is all over today's passage, which Mitch read for us, the end of John 16. And, and what we see in such a beautifully and awkward, relatable way, awkwardly relatable way, is that the first disciples, they stumble over this idea of time just like we do. We're in the middle of a teaching series in the Gospel of John called Behold Your King. And these last several weeks, we have really slowed down in the middle of a section, slowed down in a section that's what often referred to as the upper room discourse. This is several chapters of Jesus' final teaching and conversation with the first disciples during and after their final meal together, right before, immediately before Jesus was arrested and murdered on the cross. This is an extraordinary section of scripture, and it has been so enriching to study together. 
And really a lot of what drives this section is that Jesus is speaking just a bit more openly with his disciples about how his departure is fast arriving. It's coming soon. The hour is now here, his departure. And, and the theme of that, or Jesus' emphasis, more open emphasis on that in this section has really caused understandable sorrow and confusion among his disciples. I mean, think of it, right? These young men, they had dropped everything uh, to build their lives, to anchor their lives in Jesus. And I'm guessing that they had not expected that he'd only be around. They hadn't figured that he'd only be around to lead them and guide them and help them and shape them and shepherd them for only just three short years. They weren't betting on that. They had hoped to have a lifetime with Jesus. And so Thomas, right, John 14, where are you going? And if you're going somewhere, how can we follow? Because we don't know the way. Oh, gosh, I relate to that, don't you? But now a few chapters later, a few moments later, as, as they've sat in that hard, difficult truth that Jesus says, no, I'm departing, the question shifts a little bit, right? John 14, it's where are you going? But what we see at, the, at this point in John 16 is a little bit more, okay, okay, well, how long will you be gone? Do you see that? Where are you going to, well, how long will you be gone? Now, that's the first few verses of our chapter this, or our passage this morning. Start with me again, John 16, 16, Jesus speaking. A little while, and you will see me no longer, but again, a little while after that, and you will see me. And I love this. So some of his disciples said to one another, you can almost picture them, right? Like whispering off to the side, trying to make sure that like they don't, Jesus doesn't catch them with their confusion. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And then again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We, we don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew. I love that. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, he met them where they were at. He said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. I'm fascinated by the repetition of that phrase, a little while, in those verses. Remember, they're not, John, the Apostle John, he's not typing this on a computer. Like, ink and parchment are valuable resources. So when he writes something over and over and over and over again, a little while, a little while, a little while, a little while, he wants us to get it. A little while. And, and that is, like, it's not, like, that's way more imprecise than what I would want, right? Like, how, there's just, there's not a lot of precision around that time statement, a little while. So I, I man, if I, I would be confused, I would be frustrated, but the other thing that jumps off the page to me in these verses is actually, so Jesus isn't precise, but he's patient. He's not particularly precise, a little while is what does that mean? Depends on who you are. What does that mean, right? A little while. He's not particularly precise, but he is so patient. He knows. He sees them. And he slows down to sit in the middle of this confusion. And I love that. And I think the reason why Jesus is so patient is because of this. He's got all the time in the world. Jesus has got all the time in the world. And so he is so patient with us. I think we see 
this truth that Jesus has all the time in the world beautifully on display all throughout his life and ministry. One of my favorite stories that I think exemplifies this comes in Mark chapter 5. In Mark 5, there's a bunch of characters who feel like they're running out of time. They've got no patience, they're in an incredible hurry, and for really understandable reasons. So the first character that fits that description is Jairus, the synagogue leader, and his daughter is deathly sick, ill, and so he rushes to Jesus, no time, right? He's out of patience, of course he is, like I would be too, I'm a dad, I relate. He rushes to Jesus, will you come? and save my daughter, heal her. Jesus takes compassion. He travels from where he's at, begins to travel throughout the city to Jairus' house, but his fame is growing, and so the crowd grows with it. And so they're pressing along, pushing along, and there's a woman. There's a woman who has been suffering for 12 long years. And she has faith that she trusts that maybe, maybe just maybe, if I can get close enough to Jesus in the midst of this throng, this crowd, and I touch even just the inch, the hem of his garment, I can be healed. And she does, and she is, and Jesus knows, and what does he do? Remember, there's, there's a rush, impatience, hurry, no time. Jesus stops. He stops. Who touched me? It's like a ridiculous question, Right? Every, what do you mean? Is, who, what do you mean who touched you? No, 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 I know who touched me. And the woman comes forward. She reveals this beautifully intimate moment. He cares for her. Daughter, 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 your faith has made you well. Sends her on his way. Can you imagine being Jairus? We don't have time for this. Rush, rush, hurry, hurry, no time, out of patience. And in fact, they show up at Jairus' house and what's happened? His daughter's dead. Can you imagine being Jairus then? Ugh, only, right? We didn't have time. I knew we didn't have time. Jesus has all the time in the world. There's weeping. There's mourning. And Jesus says, hey, 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 no, no, no. She's only asleep. Now there's laughing. They're mocking Jesus. Like, who are you? Go up into the room, Jairus, and Jairus' wife, mother of the little girl who had passed away, who had died. James, Peter, and John, and what does Jesus do? Reaches down into death and pulls up life. And one of my favorite bits of that story is that um, he's like, hey, get her a snack. Like apparently dying it just makes you really hungry. <laughs> um, Jesus has all the time in the world. Never in a rush. And what this means is that he's got all the time in the world for you. Whatever you're holding, whatever you're moving forward in the midst of whatever you're struggling with, Jesus has time for you. He is patient with you. That's what that means, church. Abundant patience. Jesus possesses it because he's got all the time in the world. Later in this passage, Jesus says that he will soon cease to speak to his disciples in figures of speech, but will soon plainly tell them about the Father. And what he means is this time is coming after my death, after my resurrection, I will speak with plainness, as opposed to in parables or figures of speech. But his disciples, well, they are confused again. They misunderstand again. They think he's doing that now. And they probably feel like they're in the doghouse and they need to get some brownie points. So what do they say? Well, now we believe that you came from God, which is just a bit like, really? Like that? Like, and you can almost feel Jesus deeply sigh his reply back. 
with just a hint of exasperation. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Actually, he says, right, he, he, he drives this home. He reminds them, he extends further out what's coming. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, you will desert me. He's already foretold that this is happening for Simon Peter, and now he extends that foretelling further and says, wait, you believe in me? Actually, what's happening is you're about to desert me. And, and don't miss it with me. This is so different to me. The irony of this blows me away, right? They're about to desert him, but he does not desert them. He, they're about to desert him, but he does not desert them. And this struck me as so different than what we do when we run out of patience with someone. Like, we've all been there, right? Out of patience with someone. I mean, you, like, we all know that person in our life, in our family, or our friends. You've been in the car waiting for 30 minutes, and they won't stop the conversation in the lobby. Like, we've been there. My dad used to joke that you could make a killing if you set up a snack stand in the parking lot of a church selling snacks to people that were waiting for whoever it was in their life that wouldn't stop the conversation in the lobby to come out, right? And, and when you're in that spot, you run out of patience, and what do you do? You're strongly considering desertion. Like, you're on your own. I'm out of patience. Like, I'm taking off. I'm out of here. That's what we do. We run out of patience, and we move towards desertion, but not Jesus. He doesn't run out of patience, and even though his disciples are about to desert him, he does not desert them. He sticks with them. He's patient through their confusion. He's patient through their stumbling and, and not understanding. He's patient through their desertion and their abandonment because he has all the time in the world. So he's patient with them. That's first in this passage, but, but second is this. Second is this. Jesus sees every second of our story. Jesus sees every second of our story, and he promises that joy is coming. I said this last Sunday, the themes of suffering, sorrow, and hardship, they have been on repeat, on repeat, on repeat in this section of John's gospel. Have you ever been listening to music in Spotify or whatever app you use, and you didn't realize that the repeat was on? That ever happened to you? And the song is just like, why does this song keep playing over and over and over again? It's like, oh, the repeat button's on. Like, that is what's happening in this section with this theme of suffering, hardship, and sorrow. We touched on it last week, last Sunday, as we studied Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit Helper, and we see it here again in a major central way. It's verses 20 through 22 of our passage, which actually these verses make up the bulk of Jesus' response to his disciples' questions, which don't miss that, right? They're asking, where are you going and how long will you be gone? And Jesus, the, the real core of Jesus' response is actually to keep coming back to this theme of their coming suffering. That's how really, the, like the core of how he responds. It's verses 20 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. But while you're doing that, the world's going to be throwing a party. The world will rejoice because they think they've won because I'll be dead. You will be sorrowful, but... Your sorrow will turn to joy. You know, it's like when a woman is giving birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. 
Now, the particular point I'd like to first draw out from these verses pertaining to suffering and sorrow is that Jesus isn't blind to it. Jesus is not blind to our suffering and sorrow. In fact, I'm contending, and I think this passage is contending that it's exactly the opposite. Far from being blind to our suffering and sorrow, Jesus sees it, right? Go with me to the end of verse 22, or sorry, the beginning of verse 22, 22a. So also you have sorrow now, but what? But I will, I will see you again. I will see you again. Jesus sees every second of our stories, even the most difficult and the hardest bits of them. Just like Jesus doesn't desert us in our confusion, he also sticks with us through our suffering too. He does not remain far off, right? Like sometimes we think this is where Jesus is when we're entering into a season of suffering and sorrow. Like he's so far away, he can't properly see. He remains distant, aloof, detached. Like sometimes we think this is where Jesus is in the midst of our suffering and sorrow, but it's not. I will see you again. He comes close, near. He's right there. Now, in the specifics of this passage, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, I'm going to depart to the cross, which will bring about really, really deep sorrow. But then, in the grand scheme of things, very soon after that, I will resurrect from death, I will defeat death, and you will see me again, and I will see you again. That is the specifics of what is going on in these verses, but that also is a patterning, right? I mean, think about what happens after that. Jesus dies on the cross, three days later, resurrects from the grave, and, and their sorrow has turned into joy. But, but what happens a couple of weeks, a few weeks after Jesus resurrects from the dead? He leaves again. He departs again. He ascends to the Father, and there's more confusion. There's more sorrow. And the disciples say, after he resurrects, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, oh man, you completely missed it. And then when he ascends to the Father, they spend so long just looking up and like in confusion, wondering what's going to happen, that a couple of angels are like, hey guys, like, don't do that anymore. He told you what to do, right? Because there's confusion and there's sorrow again. But notice the patterning. There's confusion and sorrow at Jesus leaving, but then he comes close. So he comes up out of the grave and comes back close, and he sees them again. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then him and the Father, what do they do? They send God the Holy Spirit to dwell even closer than before. How? Well, friends, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But the Holy Spirit is God in us us. You can't get closer than that. The Holy Spirit, we studied this in John 14, has condescended to make his home within each and every single one of us that are Christians. And so that is how close Jesus comes by way of his spirit when we are in our moment of sorrow. That is how. He's so close. He can't get any closer and therefore sees every single second of our stories. Every single second. None of it is lost on him. He is not far, he is close. And he also uses, Jesus uses in this passage, this really interesting metaphor. You saw it, right, in the text? To start, again, verse 21, beginning of verse 21. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And this metaphor, it made me think this week of our birthing experiences with each of our three sons. So Ashley and I have Bevan, Owen, and Ethan. And I thought, first and foremost, I thought about how incredible Ashley was during those moments. I mean, it was truly inspiring. But I also spent time thinking about all the help we had during that hour of sorrow, as Jesus refers to it. And certainly I, I thought about the incredible doctors, the OBGYNs, who ultimately delivered our babies. But actually even more, I thought about the incredible nurses who worked tirelessly to make sure that Ashley had what she needed. The nurses that came close, the nurses who were never far away. Isn't that awesome, right? In labor and delivery, you're in the hotel room, it seems, or the hotel room, not, you're not in the hotel room. Something's gone horribly wrong if you're, if you're delivering a baby in a hotel room. You didn't make it to the hospital. So you're in the hospital room, and the nurse is not in the room with you, but all, what do you have to do to get the nurse there? You hit a button. Three seconds, five seconds, right? Because they're never far away. The nurses are there. The, the nurses see the fullness of Ashley's, Ashley's suffering and sorrow. And friends, that is Jesus. That's Jesus within this metaphor, a labor and delivery nurse. A doula, a midwife who never leaves the side of the laboring mother, never far away, but instead someone who comes close and who gives the resources needed to make it through to the other side. The, the labor and delivery nurse, they see the suffering, they see the sorrow, they see the agony, but then they're there for the end of the story, aren't they? They're there in that moment. You know, they take the baby from the doctor and they give it to the mother. And that's the piece of this that we have to not miss as well this morning. Jesus sees every second of our story and, and promises that joy is coming. And this is how he finishes the metaphor off. Go back to that verse with me. But when the woman has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And we have to see this too. Yes, it's true that Jesus sees every second of our story. He also does promise that joy is coming, right? And now within the confines of this metaphor, you see this with me, don't we? The metaphor moves. There's this progression of intense, overwhelming suffering and that transitions immediately into intense and immediate, overwhelming joy. Intense suffering to immediate joy. Intense suffering to immediate joy. And while I can't speak with firsthand knowledge to that progression, Ashley has told me that's entirely accurate. In fact, she reported a big part of what gave her the courage to face the suffering and sorrow of delivering Owen and Ethan, which are number two and number three for us, was the memory and knowledge that the joy was coming on the other side. She could hearken back to that moment with Bevan, and it carried her through the progression from suffering to joy. It's an incredible metaphor from Jesus. But, but we do have to be sure to acknowledge that when we extend this metaphor out into our different and varied real-life experiences of suffering, it doesn't always wrap up that quickly or neatly. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know many of us in this room are navigating an intense season of suffering and sorrow. And if that's you, if you're, if you're sitting here now navigating that season, then you might be a little bit frustrated with Jesus' metaphor. I mean, maybe you're thinking, I wish I could experience that kind of progression. 
where my intense suffering transitions, progresses to immediate joy. Maybe you're asking, what does that look like in my story, in my experience of suffering? How would it even begin to progress from intense suffering that I'm, I'm living in that now, I'm bound by that time? How does it progress to overwhelming joy? How does it do that? Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're frustrated by the metaphor because it's not a metaphor for you. Like, we're talking about this metaphor of suffering and joy within labor and delivery, but maybe you've struggled with infertility or you've had miscarriages or you've lost a child. Maybe you're, you're sitting here and you're like, this isn't a metaphor for me. It's, it's hard because of that. Whatever your story in the midst of this, what I can say is those are amazing, phenomenal questions phenomenal questions, and you know this, right? I don't, I don't have a specific particular answer for you. I desperately wish that I did. How does our real life suffering that we navigate in this world, how, what's the plan that God's had, God has to progress that to overwhelming joy? We don't always get to write the end of that story, this side of heaven, and that's a hard, difficult reality, and I do not have specific particular answers. I'd be lying if I said that I did. But what I can do is point us to the clarity. Jesus is so clear here, isn't he? He's so clear on the promise of the coming joy. I can point us to the clarity of that, and I can remind us that when God promises something, God does something. What God says, God does. Never once has he failed a promise. His batting average is 1,000. He is undefeated when it comes to his promises. And he promises coming joy. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And so when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We must trust his heart. I spent a lot of time this week reflecting on the story of C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman Lewis, many of us have heard of Lewis probably, the famous author and theologian. He spent most of his adult life single, unmarried. But he did end up marrying poet Joy Davidman. And he married her when she was almost not, not quite her literal deathbed, but she had a terminal cancer diagnosis. And it didn't look good at all. And so it was this great act of tender care near the end of her supposed life, the supposed end of her life. But actually then, her cancer miraculously was healed. She went into remission, and they had much, much more time together in marriage than either one of them thought, and it blossomed into this really rich and fulfilling union. But then, after three just all too short years, Joy's cancer returned, and she passed away. Suffering, sorrow, hardship, immense, intense, overwhelming, and Lewis responded by doing what he knew how to do best. He wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. He wrote long form, by hand. Journals that he found around his house, just scribbling down his thoughts about this deep, overwhelming grief and sorrow and suffering that he was navigating. And those journals were later collected together, gathered together, and published first under a pseudonym because that's how personal and raw the reflections were. And this is a masterful work. It's called A Grief Observed. It's so impactful that friends of Lewis's tried to give it to him to help him navigate his grief because they didn't know he wrote it. 
Isn't that unbelievable? And later, after he passed away, his estate allowed for it to be republished, a grief observed under his name, C.S. Lewis. And so you can find it easily now and read through it. And I'd commend it to every single one of us. So many quotes within it. But there's this section where Lewis is admitting that how he often imagines or images God or the ideas that he has of God often need to, need to be shattered. We create these false images of God, and this is what he writes. He says, my idea of God is quite often it's not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time and time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast, which that's someone who destroys false images of God. And Lewis is saying, God himself does that in our lives. And could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation, Jesus coming with flesh, God coming in Jesus with flesh, the incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by this iconoclasm, and blessed are those who are not. But the same thing happens in our private prayers. And, and friends, here's the money line. I need Christ himself, not something that resembles him. I need, we need, we need Christ himself, not something that we mock up that's close but, but isn't the real thing, not however we would wrongly image him or how we would build him so many times in our own image. We don't need that. We need Christ himself, Jesus himself. And what we will start to find if we receive Jesus himself more and more is that he is actually the portal to the promised joy of John 16. Christ himself, Jesus himself, is the portal, the direction that we take to get to the promised joy. In a different 16th chapter, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, the author, uh, the king, the poet David, he wrote it this way in Psalm 1611. He says this, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. In your presence is what? There I find fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that phrase, fullness of joy, it haunts me. Don't you want that? Fullness of joy. Joy in full. How do we get it? In the presence of Christ himself. Nowhere else. And these words were penned by a king who knew suffering, who knew loss, who knew grief, who knew sorrow, and who knew that the portal to the fullness of joy comes only through the presence of God himself. And for us, we can say now on this side, through Christ himself. And friends, notice with me, we're not talking about happiness here, right? Like happiness and joy are clearly related. But the message this morning is not this. It's not this. It's not, hey, be happy about your suffering. That's not it. The message is not, you know, chin up, put a smile on, fake happy till you make happy. Like there's no room for that in how Jesus meets us in these spaces. There's no room for that within the counsel of God's word. There just isn't. Right? We're talking about something different. We might expect that kind of response, fake happy till you make happy, if Jesus remained far away from us, if he was distant and off somewhere, if he had drifted away from us in the moments of our sorrow, but he didn't. He has come close. He's come so close that he can whisper his offer to us. I'm here. I'm here, and you can have me. 
you can have joy because I offer myself to you in my presence is fullness of joy. And there's this clear action step for the disciples in the midst of this passage. Did you see it when Mitch was reading the passage for us? It's verses 23 and 24. Here's the thrust of it, the end of verse 24. Ask and you will receive. That your joy may be, do you see Psalm 1611? That your joy may be what? Empty? Half, half filled? No, no, that your joy may be full. Ask and you will receive. Friends, we have to be asking. We have to, have to, have to, have to be asking with such bold fervency in prayer that we might be surprised by joy in the midst of our suffering and sorrow. Something like this, Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, please grant me joy. Grant me you, more of you, more of you, more of you. I'm asking, and I believe that I will receive. I believe that you came close, that you come close, and that you see every second of my story. And I trust in your promise of coming joy. Amen. I mean, listen, church, you know, hopefully you know, I am not saying that any of this is easy. I'm not. I know how hard it is myself, and I know how hard it is as I journey alongside so many of you. But I am hoping that the teaching from Jesus here and his encouragement can help us to start to face our suffering with his peace. Because he's overcome. My hope this morning is that every single one of us walks out of those doors better positioned to face our suffering with Christ's peace because he's overcome. Now, this is my not-as-good summary statement of John 16, 33, which seems like a pretty good place to, to end the sermon this morning, doesn't it? The final verse of this passage, Jesus says this. He said, I have said these things to you. I've said all of this. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is such a significant summary verse of all of these chapters that we've been studying. I look ahead to John 17, and you see that it's very related, but it's actually different because in John 17, 1, Jesus begins to offer up a prayer to God. So all of John 17 is a prayer, which means that this summarizes the entirety of Jesus' teaching that has come before in the, first, in, the, uh, in the previous chapters before this. And as he sums all of that up, he says, I've said all these things to you. I've done all this teaching. I have anchored in these places. Why? So that you may have peace. Yes, in this world, you're going to have trouble. We've also talked a whole lot about that. But I'm summarizing this teaching so that you have peace. And ultimately, you have peace. Why? Because I have overcome, overcome. That word is victorious. That word is conquered. Jesus is saying, hey, there was a battle. I won it. And I've got the spoils of war, and I am not going to be greedy with them. I am going to be generous. You can have it. You can have my joy, and you can have my peace. And I know it's going to be hard, but I'm not far away. I am close by. I am right there, and I, we can face it together. We can face your suffering. We can face your sorrow. We can face your trouble with my peace because I have overcome. You know, I know that time is still really weird. Right, like if you walk out in the parking lot today and you stub your toe, the next five minutes of your life are going to be, they're going to feel like forever, right? But if you're getting an incredible massage, that hour goes by like that. <laughs> like time is so funny. And think about these first disciples. Jesus is killed and murdered on the cross on Friday. 
And all they got to do is wait till Sunday morning, and that tomb is empty. But three days feels like an eternity when you've lost your everything. Three days feels like an eternity when you've lost your everything. And then I think about us, right? Like Jesus ascends to the Father and he says, hey, I'm coming back. And we've only been waiting about 2,000 years. (laughs) Like time is so hard. We live, we're bound by right now, this moment, this second. And often it seems like Jesus just lives in a different time zone. But even as we struggle, he gives us resources for it. He's close. He's not far. He's patient with us. He offers us his joy. He promises that joy is coming. And he gives us peace, his peace, so that we can face our suffering because he has overcome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that this is true. Thank you that your peace is on offer. Thank you that you promise that joy is coming. Thank you that you are patient with us in and through the midst of what is hard in our lives. Thank you that we get to have your son Jesus himself, Christ himself, not any image that we might construct or false idol that we would put up in his name, uh, build Jesus in our image. None of that, God. None of us need that. What we need is Jesus himself, and may we have it. Thank you that we have that opportunity. I'm so grateful for these people that they're here, that we are bound by the time of this moment. Gosh, it's not an accident, Father, that each and every single one of these people is in this room for this sermon, in this moment, for this service. So be here. We know you are, God. You already have been and continue to work in and through our lives. We love you because you first loved us. Amen.